Hey, again. Wow. So have you ever come to a church and seen a, a pastor or a... Oh my goodness. Okay. What I was about to say was, have you ever come to a church and, and seen a pastor or a preacher with a tablet and wondered what would happen if the tablet stopped working? I was about to say, that is where we're at right now. And I was going to say, bear with me for a moment, but praise the Lord, um, we're good to go. <sighs> um, Thank you for being uh, with us this morning. If you've been coming along for a while, you will, will know that we, uh, during the summer, this summer particularly, we have been in a series um, looking at great stories in the Old Testament. I personally have really, really enjoyed it and just been um, reminded of just the richness, particularly of the Old Testament um, in our Bible. So if you've got a, a, a Bible with you um, or a phone, please turn to the book of Ruth. It's just after Judges. It's quite far back or early on um, in the Old Testament. You, you get there now. To, um, we're going to read Ruth chapter 1 um, shortly. Also, just want to say, if you were able to join us last week, we weren't here. We were at Lake Michigan. So thank you guys for everybody who made the trek down there to Lake Michigan on 31st Street. Um, we, as a congregation, were able to baptize Joe Kirsch and Adam Kamarzik. Where are those guys? They're here. Some, there we go. One and then... Joe somewhere. Joe, there he is, the tall, tall guy. Thank you guys for, for just your, your heart. Thank you for that staff of obedience and, and just pro- proclaiming your faith publicly down there on Lake, at Lake Michigan. It was a joy um, to see it and a joy to celebrate with all of Park. Um, we've seen people, uh, immigrants that have come into Chicago from Venezuela um, find new life, not in America, but new life in Christ. We've seen um, uh, brothers and sisters from Islamic backgrounds and Hindu backgrounds um, being baptized in Lake Michigan. So it was a joy um, to be down there last Sunday. Um, but as I said, we're back here this morning in great stories um, as followers of Christ. Why we are in the Bible every week is, is because we don't believe the Bible is just any book, but it is a book gifted not even just to us in Rogers Park, but to the whole of humanity, um, where God uh, reveals himself and is telling us who we are and what our lives mean and just the, the kind of cosmic drama that our lives are caught up in and that we are born into. And today's story is the perfect example of how our lives are caught up in something bigger than, than we often realize. Even when life, and you know this feeling, when life feels, feels mundane, even when the problems that we're facing are felt to speak to nothing that really feels purposeful, even those moments on our darkest days, on our most hopeless days, God has revealed to us our days are not meaningless. And if that's you and you're here today and you're feeling that, my prayer is, my hope is that Jesus will remind you that your life is not meaningless. And rather, we are infused with the intentionality of God's design and purpose and his providence is resting over our lives. Your life is, is, is connected to, to an interwoven chain of events that makes up the whole of reality in which we are in that doesn't leave your life as a dead end in and of itself, but you are a part, uh, you're a link in the chain of the story that God is telling from one generation to the next generation. And understand why thinking about our lives as part of a, a chain or, or thinking about our lives as part of a larger story is particularly relevant based on today's story. Because one of the main characters today and the namesake of the book that we're going to look at, her name is mentioned in Matthew's gospel as a distant relative of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, in the, the first gospel, uh, telling the story of Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, what we find there is the family tree of Jesus. In Matthew 1, we find the genealogy of Christ. And it's not a, at first glance, you'll probably know this by genealogy, it's not the most gripping uh, passage of the Bible of name after name and father of so-and-so and so-and-so. 
But why genealogies were so important, why the New Testament starts off with a genealogy, and, and, and maybe some degree genealogies are still this important, is that genealogies during the time that the Bible was written, they, they signified who somebody was. Genealogies were markers of identity. We don't think so much like this today, but in history, if you wanted to categorize somebody, um, you, didn't, you didn't first look to them as an individual, but you looked to the individual's community. You looked to the individual's family. And even if somebody's parents or grandparents or great-grandparents had died, it would still have been acknowledged that they in the past had the power to forge who an individual would be in the present. And so the writer of Matthew, when, when wanting to point out the significance of Jesus, to, to, to who Jesus was and the identity Jesus had to help us understand Jesus, Matthew didn't just start with the life of Jesus, he started with the lives of his relatives. And what's fascinating is to be able to include females or women relatives in Jesus's family tree, Matthew had to break some rules. Historically, genealogies like the one in Matthew only included men or the fathers. And so when Matthew goes out of his way to include a number of women in the genealogy, we know we should pay attention to their stories because it took extra intentionality to include them. And that's what we're going today do today. We're going to pay attention to a young woman whose name was Ruth. Ruth's rule-breaking presence in the genealogy of Christ means if we want to understand Jesus, if we want to understand his life and his worth and his value and his significance, we need to first understand Ruth's. So let's read together Ruth chapter 1. And it reads like this, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in a country, the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Af Aphrodites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These, these took Moabite wives, the name of the one, Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women were left with her, with, with the, so the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they left, lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Where you will die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts from me. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her. She returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the, how your word grips us and, and, and draws us in. We thank you, God, um, that you use story to capture our attentions, to, to, to place us in a narrative that we may feel um, and experience what you are seeking to teach us. So, God, I pray that would be uh, the case today. God, I pray that anything that is, is, is not of you today, any words that are, are spoken would be forgotten God, I pray that your spirit would be moving in people's lives. God, I pray that we won't be just playing church this morning, but God, we will come hungry after you with posture of desperation, knowing that we need you, that this neighborhood, this city, this world needs you. So God, we ask that you would move in power, that you would transform hearts and lives, that you would bring the dead to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 1 opens us, letting us know that, that, that circumstances are not good. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A couple of years ago, we, we taught through the book of Judges, and if you remember that, you probably remember, if there's something you remember, you probably remember that the days of, that the judges ruled in Israel were kind of crazy. They were kind of unruly. They were dangerous. And there, there was no king and there was very little social stability in Israel. And on top of the violence that occurred during the days of the judges, verse 1 says currently that there's a famine in the land. None of us here are, are likely, maybe, but probably not, have experienced famine. But, but famines, they, they, they devastate. Um, in, in Ireland, in the 1845 between 1845 and 1852, about 170 years ago, for seven years, there was a potato famine. Farmers' crops failed, only to be made worse by the little food that there was being sent to the wealthy or out of the country. And so within the span of seven years in Ireland, Ireland's population dropped by about 25%. Two million people gone, seven years. One million people died of starvation and one million immigrated to places like Chicago. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Some, some of you as well may be here because of the, the choices of your, your family, maybe even during that famine. But you know what, what stands out when you read the stories of people trying to survive famine? It's not just the, the aching personal hunger, but the, the heartbreak of having nothing to give. To, to be a, a proud and respected farmer who, who, despite having all of the skill and the experience of years and years of working the land, still not being able to provide for your children or your grandchildren. 
to have, have looked forward with, with anticipation to see your children grow up strong and, and healthy, but to be forced to do nothing more than watch their growth be stunted. Famine strips people of the dignity of being able to provide. And that's what we find two parents trying to do in the opening verses of the book of Ruth. We, we read of a man from Bethlehem, Elimelech, and his wife Naomi and their two sons, and they've packed up all of their belongings for the sake of their own survival, and they have gone to live in a country called Moab. Moab was not where they belonged. The Moabites were, were enemies of Israel. They, were an, uh, they had a lot of animosity with Israel. These two nations did not get along. But off to Moab, this family went, and they began to put down roots in Moab. They were there for about 10 years, and their sons, Malon and Chilion, grew up, and they got married to two Moabite women. One of these women was called Orpah, and the other Moabite woman was called Ruth. And after, like I said, about 10 years, this family's story, it takes another tragic turn. First, there, there, there was a famine, but then Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies, followed by Orpha's husband, followed by Ruth's husband. Elimelech dies, Chilion dies, Malin dies. Our story today opens with the death of three husbands and the uncertain future of the three widows that are left behind. But Naomi decides in, in verse 6, since she's heard that the crops are beginning to grow in Bethlehem in her hometown, in her home country, she thinks, I'm going to return. I have nothing here in Moab for me. But what also becomes clear is that she, she really sees nothing for herself in Bethlehem either. In fact, Naomi, after the death of her husband and her two sons, makes the nothing that she deems herself to have explicit in two different ways. Firstly, in chapter 1, verse 7, we see these three recent widows, they begin heading back on a journey to Bethlehem. In fact, two of them have never been to Bethlehem in the first place because they're Moabites, but then Naomi stops and she tells her daughter-in-laws, don't, don't do this, don't, don't come with me. And we, we, we think, well, why? Surely the company's good. Surely they're stronger together. Why, why wouldn't she want them with her? Naomi's reason for telling Naomi and Ruth to stay in Moab is where we begin to see the theological significance of the book of Ruth, which is, which is veiled behind the cultural, in that day and age, significance of marriage. Let me, let me explain this. For those alive during this period in history, it would have been understood that marriage for women was a place of protection and a place of provision. And still today, as a, as a building block of society, marriage should still be a place of stability and protection and provision. But the difference between what is true in our culture and the reality in Ruth's context is that back then to not be married meant no protection and no means of provision. Singleness was not safe. And so Naomi turns to Ruth and Orpah and says, because I can't guarantee for you marriage, you, you can't come with me. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet in my, in my womb sons that may become your husbands? Verse 12, turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I get a husband this very night and should bear sons, would you still wait for them to be grown? Naomi envisages herself becoming a mother to two more sons as the only potential avenue for marriage for Ruth and Orba, which seems, as she points out herself, very much unrealistic. 
But the reason she even considers the idea of having two more sons is that it seems to her more likely or more unlikely that two Moabite widows will be able to find a man in Bethlehem who wants to marry them. Naomi knew what lay ahead. She knew the danger in the days of the judges. She knew the place marriage played in the, in the social fabric to protect and to provide, but Naomi had no means of making marriage happen for Ruth and Orpah. So the first way Naomi makes the nothing that she has explicit is by telling her widowed daughters-in-law, I have nothing to give you, nothing to provide for you, no provision, no marriage, stay here, at least you'll be safe. The second time Ruth communicates the nothing that she deems herself to have is, she, is when she makes it even more explicit and personal. In chapter 1, verse 13, Naomi makes the first mention of her belief that she believes the hand of God is actively working against her. Have you ever felt that way or suspected it? In fact, when, when Naomi gets to Bethlehem, she, she gives herself a new name and says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call, call me Mara, because Mara means bitter. From this day, bitterness will be my name. Bitterness will be what I am known for. She says in chapter 1, verse 1, I left here full, but I have come back empty with nothing. She just let the bitterness in. The opening chapter of Ruth is about hunger. It's about aching due to the nothing that you have, feeling you have lost the dignity of having something to give or being able to provide, feeling there is no means of provision for you or for your wife or for your children or for your family, feeling you should tell people to stay away from me. You should, you should leave me. I, I can't give you what you need, what you want. It's about struggling to, to, to shake the feeling that God is, is or has acted against you. It's about the irony of, of Bethlehem, which means house of bread experiencing a famine. And rather than responding with a sense of hope and a sense of gratitude, this is a story about becoming known as bitter. As we continue moving through this story, Naomi begins to take, it, take a back seat and the, the, the actions of Ruth begin to drive the narrative. Firstly, because Ruth refuses to stay in Moab. Naomi says, turn, turn, turn back, leave me. And Orpah agrees, but Ruth says, no. L listen, listen to her words. Ruth tells Naomi in chapter 1, verse 16, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I'm going to live. Your people, they're going to be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And these, these, these words are sometimes today incorporated in, into wedding ceremonies because what Ruth is doing here is she is committing herself to Naomi. In chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Orpah left Naomi, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth is saying, from this day forward, it will be my commitment to you that will determine the decisions that I am going to make, where I am going to live, where I'm going to go. Even the God I'm going to worship is going to be evidence from this day forward of my commitment to you, Naomi. And when Ruth says, where you, you die, there I will die, she, she's letting Naomi know that she is fully aware that this decision is not safe. There's a word that, that's used three times 
in the book of Ruth, and, and yet its meaning stands out most clearly not through how many times it's used throughout the book or even where it's placed in the book, but by the narrative itself offering examples of what this word means. It's the Hebrew word hesed. A direct translation of the word hesed is loyal love. Loyal love. It is, is a love expressed through loyalty. It is a love felt as the result of being clung to. It is a love that cannot be expressed to a stranger because it is a love that builds on a relationship that's already formed. Hesed love is the ever further commitment to one who is already known. And so after this, you could say covenantal commitment, the covenantal commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi they arrive back to Bethlehem and they arrive back together and they arrive back just in time for harvest. And it's the lack of, of, of protection and the lack of provision for Ruth and Naomi in Bethlehem, as has already been hinted at, that begins to create a tension that drives the story and the narrative and keeping us gripped to the end. How, how are they going to be safe? How are they going to provide? In chapter 2, Ruth takes a position in society befitting to a newly arrived immigrant or widow from a foreign country. She goes to the fields where different farmhands are bringing in the harvest and she joins in. She joins in with the most vulnerable and the margins of society to pick up and glean any grain that the workers might have left behind on the edges of the fields. We read in chapter two that she strategically goes to a field owned by a wealthy man called Boaz. And the reason Ruth goes to his field is because Naomi and Ruth know that Boaz is in some way related to Elimelech, Naomi's husband who has died. Boaz is a distant relative. They obviously don't feel that they know him well enough to go and just talk to him and present themselves to him directly, but they think maybe there's a chance having some familial connection with him, no matter how faint, well, maybe that will prove helpful. And we suspect that they're going to be right. In chapter 2, verse 5, Boaz, he, he notices Ruth and he asks somebody, who, who is she? And Boaz's worker tells Boaz, she is a young Moabite woman who comes back with, came back from Moab with Naomi. He makes it really clear, she, just in case you don't know, she's a Moabite. She's a Moabite from Moab. She's a foreigner. But her immigration status doesn't deter Boaz. In fact, he, he just recognizes her vulnerability. And rather than telling her to keep her distance or go away, or rather than taking advantage of her, which he could, he tells her, from now on, work only in my fields. Because Boaz has told his men, don't, don't touch her, don't touch Ruth. He tells her, you're, you're going to be safe here. And, and Ruth in chapter 2, verse 10, is like, like why? <laughs> why, why? Why are you being so nice to me? And so he tells her why. In chapter 2, verse 11, he tells her that he is showing this kindness to her because he admires her. It's, it, it becomes clear. He, he already knows Naomi's story of Naomi's husband and sons dying in Moab. And so when he is told that this young Moabite woman lives with Naomi, he realizes he knows her story too. He knows who she is. And he knows particularly that he has heard of Ruth's commitment and her loyalty to Naomi. He, he knows she chose to return to Bethlehem with Naomi, even when it didn't make sense that she returned with Naomi, even when it wasn't safe. He knows what is at stake for Ruth, her uncertain future, her limited prospects, and so Boaz respects this, admires this, and he honors Ruth for standing by her mother-in-law, committing to her. 
And in verse 16, he even lets her glean in the best spots. So she heads home after day one with arms full of barley. But when she gets home, as happy as Naomi is to hear of the fever Ruth experienced that day at the field, Naomi is not content. She's a mother-in-law after all. She, she knows, I was wondering if that little joke would land there, a little bit, a little bit. my mother-in-law's not here. <laughs> she knows this doesn't mean all of the problems are going to be solved by this, this, this arm, these armfuls of, of barley, gleaning fields is not a sustainable solution. So Naomi, discontent, tells Ruth, and this is where we see the story starts to get really interesting. Listen up, in chapter 3, Naomi tells Ruth, okay, go back and find where Boaz sleeps, and during the night when he is sleeping, go in, uncover his blanket, and lie down at his feet. And then she, she, she says, making it even more ominous for Ruth, in chapter 3, verse 4, Naomi says, he will tell you what to do next. And Ruth responds with, with kind of surprising compliance and says, all that you say I will do. And, and so we ask, well, what, what is this? If, if, if you're thinking this seems kind of scandalous and inappropriate for the, well, inappropriate for the Bible, it's not inappropriate for the Bible, but you'd be right. And if you're thinking, why would Ruth, Ruth comply, there, there, there's, that's a good question. Does, does, Ruth, does Ruth want this? Does, does Ruth feel comfortable with this? Is Ruth safe? Should she comply? In chapter 3, verse 7, it seems Boaz has had a good night, he's had a couple of beers, his heart is merry, and he falls asleep, and he wakes up at midnight to find Ruth, for all intents and purposes, in his bed. And the first thing he says is, who, who are you? Which is a good question. And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. She says very poetically, she probably repaired this, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. And we're going to get to the meaning of this word redeemer in a second, but look at how Boaz responds to this situation in verse 10. This, this is so telling. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. And we ask, well, well what, what kindness? This, this looks more like seduction than, than, than kindness. How is Ruth expressing kindness through doing this? And what first act of kindness is the second act of kindness greater than? Let me explain. The first act of kindness that Boaz is referring to is the one he admired Ruth for. Her her commitment and loyalty to Naomi in returning to Bethlehem alongside her. In fact, the word kindness here is a translation of the word hesed, loyal love. A love felt as the result of being clung to. Hesed love is the ever further commitment to one who is already known. But take, take note of this. By Ruth lying down at the feet of Boaz, Boaz is not the recipient of Ruth's kindness in this act. Once again, the recipient of Ruth's loyal, Hesed love is Naomi. And here is why. When, when Boaz makes the point of quickly noting that Ruth is, has chosen to make herself available to him rather than other potentially eligible younger men, he is noting that Ruth has especially chosen him because of his status as a redeemer. This, this is a term that we don't actually 
know very much about, but it refers to a position someone would have had who was responsible for helping family members or even other clan members or tribe members when someone fell into debt or fell into trouble. Usually this was related to ensuring that the family was able to keep their land or keep their home, and this person then would help to redeem. To redeem means to restore. And so it was the responsibility of a redeemer to protect, to provide, to make whole what had been lost. And Boaz knew and Boaz, Naomi knew, held this position as a redeemer for her family. But it wasn't foolproof. There was no real way of ensuring a redeemer would actually redeem whether they were to act or not as the redeemer was up to them. And so we ask what might compel Boaz to act and to step in and help? Well, we ask what was it that compelled Boaz to an act of previous kindness. Back when he chose to protect Ruth in the fields, what did Boaz admire about Ruth then? He was compelled to kindness when he learned of Ruth's commitment to Naomi. And here we are again. As Ruth lies down at Boaz's feet, yes, yes, we, we asked, did Ruth, did Ruth want this? Was Ruth comfortable with this arrangement? Did she, she really want to marry Boaz? Was she safe? And those questions are valid, but the validity of those questions only heightens what the text draws our attention, attention towards, which is towards precisely what Boaz is quick to realize, that Ruth's decision, once again, once again, is not a decision based on her own comfortability or her own safety. Her decisions all along have been based upon a commitment to give her life for the benefit of another, to help and to make whole again what Naomi has lost. Ruth knows the custom of the land means if Boaz is to be their redeemer, it will mean their marriage. So her lying at his feet is her asking. This immigrant widow from the margins of society is making a proposal. And what inspired Boaz to an act of kindness before in the fields is what inspires him to enact this time his very own, even further covenantal commitment to love, to say yes. And he agrees to marry Ruth. And so how, how does this story end? Does Ruth and Boaz, if they just live heavily, happily ever after? Does Ruth leave the fields for a life of luxury? Does Ruth go and have kids and grandkids? Is the ending a celebration of Ruth's new position of safety and protection? Church, how the story ends tells us what this story is really about. The story ends in chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. After Boaz has arranged, his role, has, has arranged his role as the redeemer and he's taken Ruth to be his wife, the story ends with Naomi coming back into the foreground. Listen to chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Listen, then, then the woman said to Naomi, they said this to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is worth more to you than seven sons and she has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child 
laid the child on her lap, and she became his nurse. Verse 17, And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, Obed, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. But it wasn't Naomi's. The baby is Ruth's. So why is Naomi the one that's being congratulated? Why does the story end with Ruth's son sitting on Naomi's lap? Because everything Ruth has done has been to give her life for the benefit of another, to help make whole again what somebody else lost. Rogers Park, the book of Ruth is about hunger. It's about aching due to the nothing that you have, feeling that you've lost the dignity of having something to give, of being able to provide, feeling that there are no means of provision, feeling you should tell people, stay away from me. You, you should leave me. I can't give you what you want, what you need. It's about struggling to shake the feeling that God is acting and working against you. It's about the irony of Bethlehem, which means house of bread, experiencing a famine. And this is a story about getting bitter. But church, in the end, Naomi comes back into focus. Because actually, this has been a story not only about becoming bitter, but about the bitter being blessed. Church, what breaks through bitterness what breaks through hurt and loss and disappointment? What breaks through grief? Knowing that you've been clung to. The hesed love of God cannot be shaken. It, it is a loyal love. Church, there are times when we tell God, go, leave, it's over. I have nothing for you. Nothing to provide you. My life's not going anywhere. God, look at the nothing that I have. Go, leave. And he says, no. He says, I'm coming too. The story of Ruth ends with a genealogy, chapter 4, 18 to 22, which is the beginning of the genealogy that ends in Matthew chapter 1, which is the birth of Christ. The book of Ruth ends with anticipation for the coming king, which draws our attention to Obed, Ruth's son, as, as a picture of God's coming faithfulness, of, of his future work of restoration in our lives and nourishment in our lives. And, and that is right. But when the women are congratulating Naomi, they say something fascinating. It's kind, it's kind of out of place when you're congratulating somebody on their child. They say, you know, Ruth, or say they know. They say Naomi. Do you know Naomi? They say Ruth is worth more than seven sons. They say seven because seven is the perfect number. It means infinite. And so you know what the, these women are, are are saying. They are saying Naomi, as great as this little Obed is, as wonderful it is that God has been given has given you a child. You you know what Naomi. He's got nothing on Ruth. She is worth to you more than all the sons in the world. She has all along been the bam to your bitterness. And she has never left you. She has clung to you the whole way. And so it is she, Rogers Park. Matthew goes out of his way to say, if you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand his significance, his heart, his life, his worth, 
If you want to know how much he loves you, how much he is committed to you, you need to understand Ruth. As we come to a close, we come to, to communion today to remember the body and the blood of Jesus on the cross. But it was not the nails that held Jesus there, but his loyal, covenantal, hassid love. And it is a love that has not faded. In fact, the meaning of hassid love means the very opposite of something that feeds. Hassid love cannot be expressed to a stranger because it is a love that builds on a relationship that has already been formed. Jesus knew you before the foundations of the world and he knows you today and he's clinging to you. Hassid love is the ever further commitment to one who is already known. He knows your famine, he knows your hunger. On the cross, Jesus did not consider his own safety, but rather our salvation. He acted not on the basis of his own comfort, but on the basis of the need we had for compassion. And in his resurrection, he made a way for new and eternal life to be the birth of our restoration. Jesus died to make whole what we have lost. Church, Jesus is worth more than you. Jesus is worth more than seven sons. Let's pray. God, we come before you and I pray that through the book of Ruth and your word, we will see your worth. We'll see your value. We will see your commitment, your never-ending love for us. And God, I pray as we look at Boaz (laughs) that we will see that this love is contagious, that it catches on, that when we see the love that you have had for us, that we want to give that love to others, that we will want to commit to others, that we will want to commit to your body, that we will want to commit to our neighbors, and that they will see something in us something strange, something unsafe, something uncomfortable was birthed in us by your spirit because of your love for us. God, as we come to communion, we bring ourselves to the cross, knowing that it is your love for us that held you there. May we ponder that now as we come forward. May we understand that afresh, I pray. In your name, amen.